0: Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. And now, Stan Brakhage. <laughs>
1: Thank you Thank you. Just a few things to say beforehand, and then, after you 've seen all the films i 'll be glad to entertain some of your questions. First of all, when I made these films, I went on instinct very largely, and uh, particularly those you 're going to see on tonight 's program and all the ideas that that I had then and still today were derived from looking at my own films and trying to understand what it was I had been compelled to do. Uh, I I was, as a child, and when I began making these films, and still now a constant moviegoer. In fact, uh, movies were used as the most inexpensive form of babysitting for me across large periods of my childhood in the middle of a divorce when my mother really couldn't afford any other way to keep me occupied while she earned a living for both of us. So uh, they were intrinsic with me, and when, when I began making, I, I began making along a line of what were the most interesting to me then at 17 years old, movies I was then seeing, which were um, really Italian neorealism, basically. And uh, little did I know at that point that I was as that that was at the moment a kind of crossroads for the commercial international commercial cinema, uh, a crossing of earlier realist ideas that come out of Zola, for example, and and the early stage in France and surrealism. Um, Cocteau and that Fellini was then going to become a major uh, representative of that growth in the world. During the making of most of the films that you'll see on this program, in fact uh, all of them, it still lingered in the back of my mind that I probably eventually would uh, go to Hollywood and and hoping to get there just at the point that the Renaissance was occurring or that uh, The Irish Abbey theaterness of it was beginning, or whatever. Uh, and, and that never happened uh, because something else was happening. Now, recently I've had to rethink um, because of hiring in the faculty where I teach at the University of Colorado what is it that you would give to a film student to begin with? that would be comparable to, let's say, line drawing that uh, painter students for centuries have received as a beginning discipline. And the word discipline uh, helped me, and, and actually uh, John Reiter, a uh, uh, bolder filmmaker, um, proposed that story would be that, uh, that thing that would be comparable to line drawing, that in making a film, story would be. And I'm, I bristled tremendously at this because seems to me most of my life, and instinctively, as I think you'll see in these films, there's been a resistance to story. All of these films have some story that's at least those that we'll see on the program this program, but there's a bristling at that possibility and 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 not just that kind of bristling to say, well, we'll put the middle at the beginning and then the end in the middle and then begin at the end. Or shift around Aristotle's imperatives, but really, that the very act of telling a story—my feeling was—is something that language can do, and that um, uh, the visual, moving visual medium is very inept at. So that it, understandably, takes a hundred million dollars, a gigantic crew, uh, camera people, uh, a, a union—you know—working overtime. <laughs> Uh, to achieve, to squeeze out of this recalcitrant medium, storytelling. It's a tough, hard thing to do. Whereas there are other things that, it's, that are more natural to film. And uh, you know, uh, that's where I tried to begin. Resisting story, but something more how the mind thinks, free of words. So then I think at that point I should turn these varieties over to you. Uh, right at the start, desist film was was made directly out of the surface of daily living and uh, of what I and my high school friends were then facing and 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 then you you see a progress of these through the dreams, the nightmare dreams uh, close friends of mine were having um, or Uh, Reflections on Black uh, put me so much in mind, as it always does, of New York City, where I was then living on the Lower East Side in conditions which I am, yes, symbolizing, you know, creating a dreamscape for, but which in fact weren't too distinct from what the living then was for me, the background noises of it the uh, stilted, mannered, awkward conjunctions of people trying to get to know each other in some catastrophe of, of filth and city horror, and, uh, and so on. And yet to do this not with story, but to be more true to how the mind's actually moving with moving visual images. So that's what I was trying to do. Thank you. Thank you, David, for... The, the programming was very good. I mean, um, uh, it's it's hard for me to imagine when I read somewhere what order someone has made of something. Then I see, and I see all kinds of things that I hadn't seen before because of the sensitive anthologizing. And also the projectioning is just wonderful here. You're so lucky to have such a place as this. And I... I often, uh, when I go places, I say, well, I, I don't, I'm not really an experimental filmmaker, but the projectioning is often very experimental. <laughs> so it's really excellent here, and it's a good-feeling auditorium. So I guess with whatever time we have left, I just open myself to your questions and comments and try to entertain those uh, as best I can, yes.
0: Isn't the material in your film Wondering associated with Joseph Cornell? Well, yes, he commissioned
1: that film, actually, and and in a wonderful way. Uh, First of all, uh, he he was in deep grief that the Third Avenue Elevated was going to be torn down. It was terribly important to him. And so he wanted a filmmaker to film it, and Parker Tyler uh, suggested me. And um, Joseph, uh, being as cautious as he always was, uh, said, well, he has to arrange a meeting. It was so typical that he, he chose that I, w- I was given tickets to go to a special occasion where Eva Legallion was reading uh, uh, Hans Christian Andersen's stories uh, at a anniversary of Christian Andersen in the New York Public Library. And uh, I found myself the only man there and not very well dressed for the occasion. <laughs> uh, I dressed as best I could, but I was living in, in that place you saw in Reflections on Black at the time. So... Um, and and then I, I was the only man there and then I noticed there was another man a kind of a, re, a really thin very shy man that kept peering out from behind bookshelves and pillars and so on so he was watching how I would react to Hans Christian Andersen before coming up and introducing himself and then he sent he asked if I had ever ridden on the 3rd Avenue L I lived a block from it but I never had and uh So he then sent some tokens in an envelope in the mail. Uh, Six of them, as I recall. (laughs) So I rode up and down dutifully all six times. And then um, uh, he called, and I was uh, properly enthusiastic. So then he sent more tokens and uh, three rolls of Kodachrome. And uh, so that's how that film came to exist and uh, then he made his own version of it. Uh, in other words, I gave him all the outtakes and a print, of course, and he then made his own version of it, which is The Wonder Ring as you'd see it in a mirror, which we sort of pronounce near red now, not, <laughs> not knowing how else to deal with it. And uh, that's a marvelous film that I hope you get to see sometime. It's quite, quite different from this one.
0: Were the actors in the first few films really aspiring actors and actresses? They had done plays, high school
1: plays, and things of that sort. Now, that, that's the, in the earlier ones. Reflections on Black were some people living here in New York who were aspiring to an acting career. Um, let's see. Let's start with Desist Film. Really, they're just high school friends. One of them, the man investigating his navel... Um, and I, I always determine if the times are happier times as to whether people laugh or not at that film. <laughs> so I was glad to hear some laughter today. Um, he's actually one of Canada's foremost character actors now. And for the last several years, he's been permanent with the Shaw uh, group that's at Niagara, and um, where they perform mostly Bernard Shaw. So... Um, but the rest really, even at that time, he wasn't what you'd call an aspiring actor. He hadn't uh, appeared in, in anything. you know. The man who holds up the matches is Larry Jordan, the filmmaker. You know, All these people went off in different directions and did many different things. The one using the mandolin for a machine gun was voted America's Father of the Year one year, for example. <laughs> so they all had various careers. The woman uh, got famous for a while uh, contacting the ghost of Jimmy Dean in medium sessions. So, um, on and on. Um, But Newcomb, who plays in that film and who is the only protagonist in The Way to Shadow Garden, uh, is a school teacher who, I guess his claim to fame, like they say, is he organized the teachers' union in Denver. And uh, so... They they all, you know, did various things. My sense of the acting, of course, is that I am a great respecter of the art of acting. And, and, in fact, that's the primary reason I, and I think practically anyone else, goes to the movies, so to speak. I mean, it's just been a flourishing of something extraordinary in our times. And uh, so the movies there are very much... A recorder of these extraordinary performances and these performances are much changed than they would be on the stage I mean of course by the power of the movies so that's that's a craft and elegant art that I deeply admire it again was not one that interested me all that much even when I had real um, young professional actors in Reflections on Black i don 't direct them in ways to fully use their sensitivities. they tend to look overacted They, they overact and they are are forced to do that by me and i, I don 't really have a very clear you know explanation for that, except to say that people in ordinary life it seems to me overact ordinarily in crises and they and I was again trying uh, somehow by subverting story and narrative drama and so on. I was not very consciously, but I was accepting of what is an awkward and disturbing acting, which, which tends to say, I am acting. So you could almost say it's like an a, um, embarrassing uh, embarrassment that's again and again created. I don't finally know whether it works or not. I don't finally think that there was much future for what we then called psychodrama or closet drama. Um... But I do know this, that the roots of any making seem again to go back to psychodrama, to psyche at least, or to some kind of notion if drama is going to be in film. And if you do accept that story is a basis, so it would be as like line drawing would be for painting in 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 beginning at film, then certainly for any possible art of film, it would have to tap psyche in a way that that Hollywood deliberately and very carefully, absolutely excludes from its making. And it does so, I think, deeply on an unconscious level because its chore is more of a social one. It's, as I've felt, the social dance or the tribal dance. So it, it cannot allow psyche in except as psyche is everyone's or the group psyche. So <clears throat> the roots. Of any given art probably are in touching psyche in that sense and um, and the psychodrama is something uh, that it seems quite natural as a beginning then as you've already seen in this first program um, I'm growing beyond or I don't say beyond I'm not going to say certainly above but out of those possibilities I've entertained your question so far. I don't know where I am. (laughs) Let me ask one question. If you go further east from where we now are, do you come to Flushing? Is that out east from here? Well, then to answer the question at the dinner, David, I have been to Flushing before and uh, what reminded me of it was seeing reflections on black because somewhere between uh, Manhattan and Flushing where I used to go to visit Joseph was a recording studio And it probably was one of this complex of buildings. I mean, they did the best professional recording out here. So I, I, with great terror and trepidation, uh, got on (laughs) the subway and came, or which became the elevated or whatever it was anyway, and got out here. Managed to get off at the right stop, and I mean, you know, I suddenly had vague memories. Yes, I have been here before, and this is the reason I had to make this trip: is that I had sent the film out to be have a soundtrack put on, and these worried engineers called me and said, we we have a a clatter in the background that we can't get rid of, and we're we're not going to print it unless you come out and listen to it and give us the OK. So I knew what it was. It was that the only way I had to record anything was with uh, one of those old bell and howls that had a magnetic stripe, and it couldn't muffle the bell and howl better than that, and I was extemporizing on the piano in that sequence and with the humming then later you know, in order to make this track. And uh, so they just uh, gave me a very hard time, and finally I had the hubris, I mean, coming from a burned-out building on the Lower East Side where I was then living, to say to them, listen, this was a great performance by a great pianist, and even though it has this noise in the background, it must be preserved. So they forged ahead, and thus, thus the film has this soundtrack. So yes, I have been to Flushing before.
0: Could you talk about your early career as an artist? How did you decide where you wanted to go in your explorations with film?
1: Yes, well, it was then, and it still is very confusing, Um, especially for film, where where the question is, is it an art at all? I have, after all this struggle, come to be convinced that it can be, but whether it yet is or not, I'm not sure. Has something yet been made of real lasting value? And then even if it were, the question still sits there, could we preserve it, if it were? You know, is there, or is it all kind of a sand blowing in the wind? So those are the dilemmas. I mean, just put it simply, far too simply, but I wanted to be a poet since I was uh, 8 or 9 years old. And, 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 and the very idea that I would end up working with a medium that involves such equipment and, and complexity and such expense, such a terrifying expense... Uh, it's just appalling to me. I mean, uh, I, I don't know how it happened. I, I wonder what I did uh, that was so bad in some previous reincarnation, you know, to be stuck with this. And so uh, there's that aspect which I was early on aware of, and because and I, I just thought of myself as a poet making a film like Jean Cocteau did or like others did, you know, uh, Auden did a soundtrack for night mail and and uh, Dylan Thomas was variously involved with film and I thought you know I was doing something really more like Cocteau or hoping to aspiring to but then what I did wasn't really very all that much like Cocteau as you saw you know there's certain obvious in- imitations uh, from him but but basically, it's not really a cinema at all like his. His really is a literary cinema. And much as I love literature, right from scratch, I began just intrinsically resisting it as an influence. So, even by the time of making all these, by the way, there's two films earlier than, than Desist film. And one was very modeled after Italian neorealist work, and uh, to some extent out of, after Orson Welles. The second one was really very much Orson Welles and Carol Reed in some sense. It was close enough to that Hollywood standard that it actually got me a job to understudy Hitchcock. Uh, that's a film called Unglassed Windows Cast a Terrible Reflection. These were both rather, you know, long films for beginning films. One was half an hour and the other about uh, 35 minutes. And then came Desist film and david's right to choose to De- desist film in this limited retrospective because desist film is my real beginning you know where where i wasn't any longer how shall i say enthralled by the early movie going um but then for years still i had the assumption and probably it was still lingering there by the time i made Nightcats. i think night cats was the last trip to la and that was where i had this offer and and uh, j- turned it down from the Hitchcock Studios to study under him and then to to make uh, films in the Hitchcock uh, TV series. So uh, I don't know how I did that at that time. I just I actually I never actually had the guts to call him up and say I'm not doing it. You know. <laughs> I just sort of let all our contacts lapse and they kept calling and leaving their message for me to call back. So because I sat in the cowardness and in a state of terror, I was living in a Los Angeles Mexican slum with my high school friend, Romero Cortez's mother, who was despising both of us that we weren't out getting a job. And yet, and I was going to be paid, and this is we're talking way back then in the 50s, I going to be paid $600 a week just to go to school and study under Hitchcock. And I just let it drift away. So that's where I really first really had the sense of what, what, at least what kind of an artist I would aspire to be and what kind of an art I thought film could be and that it was not going to be possible in Hollywood. Why not? Well, oh, why? Oh God, how can I tell you unless you've been there and, and, and walked through those thick carpets and encountered in 1952 uh, a, a woman in a pale lavender gown in the afternoon, w- a, a strapless uh, and, and practically backless uh, so that cleavage was showing at the bottom with slightly tinted platinum hair leading you through this thick carpet to a desk as big as this whole front three rows, behind which sat her tin twin sister, who then, tin was a nice pun, who then escorted you into a little weazen man sitting behind a larger desk, being brought his milk in the afternoon and talking to Loretta on the phone and calming her down. And being told by this little man that Alfred Hitchcock was the world's greatest filmmaker and being so overwhelmed at this point that I couldn't say no. You know, I, I, I just... I was, All I was doing was grappling with the seat that was enfolding me, you know. So... I knew they'd kill me, you know. I knew that, that they'd killed people that were a lot stronger than me, Orson Welles, for example, or, or, or I knew right that, at that point what had happened to Charles Lawton because he'd gone too far with Night of a Hunter. How they could take away from him entirely Norman Mailer's Naked and the Dead and give it to such a slouch as Reuben Mamoulian, who made a very bad movie out of it. You know, that, that literally, it, 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 it's slaughter. I mean, I don't know, is that enough? Otherwise, you have to go see for yourself what a canning factory it is. And then, having said that, how I start with my respect for what it is. I mean, there are people who really are involved as artisans, I would call them, in the tribal dance. And some of them actually have the martyrdom of being artists. And they but they managed to juggle somehow this vast canning factory with all its pomp and ceremony and big bucks and power more supercharged than washington actually and and they managed to every now and again give us some some kind of an art out of it, but it certainly isn 't Elizabethan England, or you know uh, Yeats could never stand <laughs> driving people away from the ticket counter and create an Irish abbey there, not in these times. I mean, the dream always is that eventually it or something comparable will be. I suppose the dream once was that way here. I mean, there were people dreaming, Griffith, for example, of high art in the movies that would just roll out into the Nickelodeons or the theaters. And occasionally, every now and again, someone does one and they pay dearly for it. So I wasn't that strong. I mean, I'd, I couldn't hold a candle to the kind of uh, control of masses of people and money that uh, that Orson Welles can, and look what they did to him. So I kind of knew that because I couldn't say no to this little reason man. Alfred Hitchcock is not the world's greatest filmmaker. Uh, Eisenstein is, or, or I am, you know. <laughs> and not that he'd have cared. He wouldn't have cared. He probably thought, that's cute. The kid has spunk or something, you know, give him a job. But I couldn't do that, see? So then
0: I knew it's not for me. Do you feel like the psyche can be addressed by the actor's performance?
1: Well, it certainly is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because, interestingly enough, last night, Sidney Peterson, whom some of you know his work, I'm sure here, we were talking about this very matter, and what one thing right away, that on the screen, the actor has to be him or herself, actually. And that's not true of the stage. With the stage, there's always projection, there's loudness, there's, therefore it leads to a whole rank of gestures that are particular and marvelous for the stage, that are a transformation. But in the movies, the camera's that close and that perceptive, Uh, even closer not that only that acting sense of being oneself not acting is really where the magic is and um, and and this certainly is has roots in psyche so that to me is what the art of of most of uh, Hollywood and uh, European uh, Hollywood or you know uh, Japanese or Chinese Hollywood is uh, is the tapping of this uh, great art of acting and that certainly is touching Psyche. But then it, doesn't, it ends up being a record of that, which means as anything other than a record of that, uh, the vision isn't tapping Psyche, the cutting isn't, the music isn't, and, and the, you know the slavish strictures to story make it completely impossible because outside language, as I feel it, Psyche doesn't speak with words. When you get to the where we have that final word, it's sort of like to me that word that says uh, last chance gas station as you face Death Valley is uh, the ineffable. And at that point is where film really begins coming into its own vis-a-vis language. So then it ends up being a record of um, or with wonderful moments where it's, you stumble into some vision or other, which by the way, are fought for very hard. I've worked in the commercial industry, so I know how hard even people lower down in the echelon like a cutter will fight to keep in a certain shot that has some quality that's utterly ex- extraneous to the story. And literally at board meetings, I've been in attendance where they will say, okay, well, let Charlie have his shot just because just he's been so bothersome about it because they want to stay in his good graces because he can wreck the whole damn thing for them, you know. Uh, recalcitrant workmen try to keep some envisionment in the movies and succeed, you know, now and again. But what what kind of an aesthetic is that? How how would we going to museums to look at paintings? Can you imagine the sense if we took these same values to a museum, we'd say, well in the upper right hand corner there is something there that's of an aesthetic importance, you know, the rest is just the usual schlock, but look at this upper right hand corner you know, or there are these spots here and here. Notice how they cluster every time there's red. I mean, uh, there's a little gathering of forms that seem to you see, we just take such low standards to the movies, of course. I mean I mean I shouldn't say "we I mean, I do, you know, uh, because otherwise I could I'd, I'd, I'd lose the movies. And so I really roll into the movies and with the, try to get myself calmed down to a three-year-old mind and, and enjoy myself. Then, every now and again, uh, Scorsese, for example, pulls me up to the possibilities of an art there, you know, and I'm, I'm deeply moved, or, or acting performances that occur uh, do I, make me try to avoid the clutter that's going on in the background where anything might be there that just happens to be, you know. <laughs> Wherever they were aiming the camera, you know, there's, a, there's a charge in the foreground uh, of she wore a yellow ribbon, and in the background of the Indians and all that, and in the background a Greyhound Bus is working its way slowly up the hill, and most people never notice. So it isn't just me who tries not to notice the clutter in the background. Most people don't, because it would ruin the movie. So they stay fixated on, on this that does, yes, touch psyche, the, the great art of acting in our time.
0: What kind of experience are you looking for when you go and see a film by Bruce Bailey or Michael Snow or somebody who's not doing that?
1: Well, I'm, I'm going with the, in the same way I'd go to a museum to see painting or sit down and read some poetry
0: or, or go to a concert. You know. um. So what kind of things do you enjoy in those terms, in those high art standards?
1: Well, I, let's don't say high art. I just think it's a matter of art. I don't think there's high and low art. I think it's either art or it's not.
0: And then there's a big debate,
1: and then that's a personal matter. Each person has their different sense of what an art is, and, and I grant that is terribly important. Because those are the grounds out of which art arises, is each is being true. The makers have to be in, incredibly true, each to him or herself in the making. And uh, then that touches some people and, and most not until it's been around for a long time, uh, if, it's, if it lasts. And then it becomes kind of a thing that seems to reverberate with a great many people. But certainly the, the reception is always as extremely personal as the making, so I, I just take i 'm sure the most normal expectations when I go to a gallery I mean does it does it move me, and if it does move me, is it influencing me to go do something? and if it is, then I, I feel influenced and i don 't feel i don't I'm, i, I can 't have an aesthetic experience, but if i 'm moved from the inside of me out in front of a painting where the material is coming from the world that the painting is and it's intact and I'm intact then the hairs rise all up along the back uh, and the mind is thrilled and I can I, I in many, most cases I can look at that forever and each see it new and see more different things all the time and I can't have that aesthetic experience while it's engaging me from the outside in I don't know words are Words are very limited here in talking about these things, but I trust you can read between, between the lines of chatter here and get some sense of what I mean. It's a kind of a thrill. It's very hard to describe. The, the brain actually uh, feeds on aesthetic experiences in some way that's just unlike anything else. It's very rare, and I don't, by the way, think it's any more important than anything else than going to the movies. It is rarer. And if you need a lot of it, like I'm kind of an art hog in that sense, then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just feverishly searching for it all the time. It's as, um, as crucial as prayer. Oh, that sounds so sanctimonious. I, yeah.
0: I was struck by how similar to Zist film and the way to shadow Garden films by Cindy Peterson and Kenneth Anger. Yes. Did you see their films at that time?
1: Uh, I saw Sidney Peterson's work sometime between the making of Reflections on Black. And so, actually, the first Sidney Peterson I saw, I had already shot Reflections on Black, but I hadn't edited it. And I saw it here in New York, you know, and I met him at that time. And uh, and I saw Led Shoes and uh, Frenhofer in the Minotaur. Uh, I had seen Kenneth Anger's work. Uh, when I showed um, in between, uh, Griffith, then the head of MoMA, uh, dismissed it because he said it was imitative of Maya Darin, of that Stoffacher sequence where he has her bumping against the walls up and down the stairs. I had never seen that film at that point, but then I searched it out and saw it shortly thereafter. Uh, it was hard to see these films in those days. Um, by the time I made... Um, Reflections on Black. I had seen most of the Museum of Modern Art collection of um, of early, you know, Dada and Surrealist films. I had seen Eisenstein, um, not all of it, but it was it was again very hard to see. Um, I think there are certain paths that are intrinsic to film, and it will draw people to them and and so you'll find springing up in different people certain possibilities because the human uh, spirit within a given culture at least has moved to begin to need these things so they'll begin to occur in different people uh each in his and her own way so that's the cu- kind of cultural influence on the possibilities of an art but then where where really where the aesthetic experience begins for me at least is is that point at which you I really feel individual person. It's almost as if it were, by being personal, it's a song to all other persons, to the uniqueness of every other person in the audience, which is something quite opposite than what, as I also value, uh, the traditional Hollywood movie does. It tries to make a tribal dance, so we, we have something to share. So the two are necessary. People have made many corollaries, and one that seems useful in a way, though, again, it'll have the limits because it refers to another medium, to to writing. But there's the difference between poem and prose, poetry and prose. And um, yet, of course, there are great works of prose that are often called poetic prose for the reason that they also make a kind of poem in the mind, uh, irregardless of story. Uh, and there are some poems that are telling a story. So it gets confusing, but basically, uh, just as a very generalized thing, you might think of that distinction, and, and that that can't arise in any public medium uh, like uh, Hollywood in times like these, for again, the reason that the roots are not in psyche, or at best, only as psyche's manifestation in the art of acting is recorded.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.